millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Derek O'Reilly, and for over 30 years, I've been a licensed London taxi driver. For 20 years, I taught the knowledge to prospective London cab drivers. During this podcast, I'm going to be joined by experts who are going to bring the forgotten and secret history of London to life. Today, I'm going to discuss spying and espionage in London. Joining me in this discussion is an old friend. Hello there. I'm David Charnick. I'm a qualified City of London tour guide, but I also guide a fair bit in Tower Hamlets, the original East End, where I've lived all my life. And I also teach tour guiding through the local authority, the council. Well, hello once again, David. Hello then, Derek. Good to see you. And you, sir. Now, during our discussions, we've looked at historical London and other Mm -hmm. bits and pieces. And this morning I thought, you know what? I'm going to ask David about espionage (laughs) and spying. Mm. Um, Sort of James Bond-esque. So before we sort of become London specific, can you just give me a lowdown on MI5 and MI6 and the history of them, please? Yeah, certainly. I mean, as you can appreciate, there has been a form of military intelligence for quite some time, although it's not really till the 1850s that the army starts to get its intelligence act together. And then you get the Navy in 1887. But... Espionage and intelligence as we know it really dates back to 1909 with the creation of the Secret Service Bureau. And that started as two men, Vernon Kell and Mansfield Smith Cumming. Kell was a captain in the British Army and he was given the remit of finding German spies. There had been this spy mania since the late 19th century, the belief that spies were being deployed in Britain by Germany. And his work was the foundation of MI5, so a counter-espionage agency. Mansfield Smith Cumming was a commander in the Navy, and his task was to build a network of informants and observers to watch German shipbuilding, because the German Navy was being enhanced and expanded. And that espionage effort became MI6. So those are the two big bodies, MI5 and MI6. MI5 domestic counter-espionage, MI6 overseas. Now, on the knowledge, 
Mm-hmm. The way we remember is one is north of the river and one is south of the river, both located between sort of Lambeth Bridge and Vauxhall Bridge. Am I right? That's correct. You've got MI5 at Thames House, which is number 11 Millbank, which was actually built for ICI, the Imperial Chemical Industries, originally. And across the river, the other end of Vauxhall Bridge, you've got Vauxhall Cross, which is where MI6 have been located since 1995. Yeah, and quite an iconic-looking building as well. It is very distinctive, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So what led to the creation of the Secret Service? Was it purely that German imperialism was worrying Britain? The fact that Germany was rebuilding its navy and enhancing its navy was a threat to the balance of power uh, because Germany might have been looking to expand its empire. And don't forget, in those days, the world was dominated by the two imperial powers, Britain and France. So to have a third empire coming in and disrupting everything, that could have caused problems. Or indeed, they could have believed that Germany was preparing for a declaration of war. So presumably, Germany was sending spies into the UK. Where were they coming from and how were they placed? To be honest, they weren't. It was This sort of spy mania was largely illusory. It was created by writers of sensational fiction. It's only really with the outbreak of the First World War in August 1914 that espionage really starts to take off. And then Germany is deploying all these spies in Britain whose main task was one thing, to bring back naval intelligence. That's what they needed because of the U-boats, the submarines. They were very effective, but very short range. They needed to know where the ships were. So one of the things that's always fascinated me and still does is if you're a spy and let's say you're German coming into the London area, for example, how do you get away with your accent? What happens there? Well, don't forget, you've had German immigrant communities in London since the 18th century. Uh, So we were used to having Germans around. And you may remember, with the First World War, a great deal of German citizens, British citizens who were German, were interned in these big camps. So um, you could pass yourself off, for instance, as Dutch, because the Netherlands were neutral in the First World War. In fact, a lot of German spies were coming through the Netherlands, and indeed, they were using Dutch nationals, which was a bit naughty, because uh, it was breaking Dutch neutrality. But they would come over with boxes of cigars as samples, pretending to be sales representatives of Dutch cigar firms, But the giveaway was they would never go near a tobacconist. They would just head for the towns and cities where the uh, naval bases were. And also custard powder, believe it or not. The Germans knew that the British liked custard. So they used to give these people these sample custard powders and send them over. You know, but I mean, we were already manufacturing custard powder. We didn't need to import it. So uh, it shows a sort of... The, the level of understanding of espionage at the time, I suppose. Yeah. So how successful were these spies in sending information back? Uh, very unsuccessful, as it happened. They were picked up fairly easily. Very few German spies during the First World War were not arrested. And from what we know from German intelligence records at the time, the ones that weren't arrested didn't really send anything useful back. Right. But it was MI5 and, of course, the police 
that were mopping up all these spies. Why were the police involved? Why, why do they have to collaborate with the Secret Service? Uh, because these people needed to be arrested. It's only the police forces in this country, or police services as they're called now, that have the power of legal arrest. Nobody else does. Even now, I mean, MI5 can't arrest anyone. They have to get the police in. So Basil Thompson, who was the assistant commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, he was the head of the CID. And he actually wrote up after the war his memoirs of spy-catching days during the First World War. Although, of course, he couldn't mention MI5 because they were an official secret. So okay. officially they didn't exist. So he just talks about the police activity. But he talks about all the different um, spies they arrested, uh, including Marta Hari, the famous uh, Dutch siren, you know, the exotic yeah. dancer in inverted commas, who would seduce these men to get their secrets in pillow talk. Um, he didn't reckon much about her. You know, he didn't see the attraction. Um, and it's been debated how effective she actually was. But clearly the French government thought she was sufficiently effective to have her executed yes. by firing squad. Yeah, and her name has obviously become synonymous with spying and espionage. David, can I ask you what fate befell these spies once they were caught? Usually execution by firing squad. Uh, they weren't all executed. Some were just interned but mainly execution in both world wars. That was the, the traditional uh, penalty for spying. Right. So presumably MI6 were responsible for sending British spies to Germany? MI6 in the First World War was still in very early stages, don't right. forget. I mean, they'd only been in existence for less than five years when uh, the war broke out, although there weren't MI6 then, they were MI1C but they were the secret intelligence mm. service. And Mansfield Smith Cumming, the man who developed this network of agents, he was having to withdraw a lot of activity. He closed his activity in France and Belgium, but he focused on the Netherlands. And there was a man called Richard Tinsley, who was uh, Mansfield Smith Cumming's man in Rotterdam. And he managed to get things established in uh, the Netherlands as a whole, because the Dutch... They thought, well, what should we do? Because we're neutral um, and we could try and stop espionage, but it wouldn't be feasible. So the idea was that they allowed espionage to carry on, provided that the different sides agreed to share with the Dutch government any information that would impinge on Dutch interests. And the Germans were a bit reluctant to do that. But Richard Tinsley said, absolutely. He was a businessman. He knew the value of the offer. So he managed to get a good foothold in Rotterdam. And so after the war, Mansfield Smith Cumming was able to build on that and to start spreading his activities on the continent. So let's move to after the First World War mm. and the interwar periods yeah. before the Second World War broke out. How did the sort of institutions, the spying institutions, develop? Well, after the First World War, of course, we get a new enemy in terms of intelligence, which is Soviet Russia. So you've got the revolutions in 1917, particularly the October Revolution, which established the Bolshevik government. And officially, the Russian government, the Soviet government, had no interest in subverting the British parliamentary democracy, officially. 
of course, unofficially, <laughs> they were trying to promote revolution. Because if they could have got a revolution in Britain, that would have been a big coup because of Britain's empire, basically, and yes, especially obviously. India. There was a lot of outreach to India and communist groups there to try and subvert them. So London now becomes the focus of all sorts of Soviet penetration. And it's the question of how to respond to that. So this is when MI5 starts to develop its counter-subversion activities as well as counter-espionage, because you get Russian agents coming over uh, to work with communist groups to try and, and subvert things. You know, they would have members in the armed forces, and so... Uh, Soviet propaganda would be uh, disseminated around the armed forces in the hopes of provoking mutinies and that sort of thing. Right. And then obviously in the build-up to the Second World War, mm. um, Germany again became the sort of foe, didn't they? Oh, yes, yes. Um, there was uh, a great deal of civilian espionage. I mean, you mentioned James Bond. Well, Ian Fleming, during the Second World War, he worked for the Naval Intelligence Division. But in the run-up to the Second World War, he was basically a freelance spy. He used to go to the continent and he'd sort of travel around picking up all this information, which he'd bring back to London and hand over to MI6. Ah, oh, so that's the basis of the James Bond stories then. Essentially, the gentleman spy, as it were. Yeah, yeah fascinating. Well, that's what got me interested in all this in mm. the first place. Yeah. yeah. So what happens then, war breaks out, mm -hmm. the Second World War breaks out, and how did the system develop from there? Well, in terms of German penetration of Britain, German spies... Uh, we get a very good record for MI5 and GCHQ, you know, the code breakers. Right, yeah. Although in those days, they were the government code and cipher school, GC and CS. And they were intercepting all these German military communiques, which they could read because we had their codes. And the Germans didn't know that, of course. So it was easy to find where the spies were being deployed and to monitor them. And they were being picked up and as we've discussed, the usual penalty was execution. And the government, and particularly Churchill, uh, they wanted these spies shot because it would make public how successful we were at, being, uh, at capturing the German spies. But MI5 didn't want that. They wanted to use them. And there was a a section of MI5, Section B, and within that, the 20 Committee came into being, and this was based on St. James's Street. Right, where does the, why are they called the 20 Committee? They were called the 20 Committee because they were in charge of the scheme known as the Double Cross, you know, we double cross someone. Yes. Um, and the Roman numerals for 20 are two X's, the Double Cross. Oh, now I understand. Yeah. So they had to fight the government and say, don't execute these spies, don't let the Germans know they've been caught, and we will use them. And they would turn them, and they would make them transmit misinformation back to Germany to undermine the German war effort. So although it was not useful from a propaganda point of view for the people. Yeah, as I say, Churchill wanted the people to know that we were picking up all these spies. MI5 wanted to you know, lose that advantage by getting the much bigger advantage of 
conning the Germans, basically. Right. And so the Second World War comes to an end, mm -hmm. and obviously a very cold war breaks out. Well, that's right, yeah. I mean, the Soviet Union, of course, was an ally during the war, but of course, after the war, everything goes back to how it was, you know. And so suddenly the, the sort of the Cold War battle lines are drawn up with the Soviet bloc in the east and the allies in the west. And that's when you get Soviet penetration again. Right. Uh, by illegals, illegal agents. Explain to me what's an illegal agent as opposed to a legal agent. <laughs> well, a legal agent is a, a diplomat someone who is part of the diplomatic mission they're attached to the embassy wow. an illegal is an agent working under deep cover and this was a particular speciality of the soviet union they would get documents uh, where possible stolen passports i mean in the 1930s when you get the spanish civil war literally thousands of passports were being lost by all these people fighting against the fascists uh, but they weren't lost. They were being stolen by Soviet agents and they were making their way back to Moscow and they would be doctored to use as cover documents for Soviet agents. But the illegals really start to develop well after the Second World War and they start taking uh, Russian people or other Soviet people uh, to Canada or America for a while to acclimatise to the West so that they could go under effective cover. And then they would give them a fake identity. It would be a real person's identity, preferably someone who was dead. Right. And, uh, and then they would make their passports for them and everything. So they'd come over, usually to Canada. That was the, the, the gateway in uh, because of its high immigrant population. And then they would go to the States or they'd come across to London. So you would get a number of illegal agents, and they weren't doing the spying. They were cultivating moles, people who would leak secrets. I mean, that's largely how it works. Right, yeah. It's how it worked between the wars as well. You know, you, you, you get the local people, as it were, to spy, to betray their country. So the Soviet spies, they're the spy handlers, the, um, the spy masters. Now, when you say betray your country, obviously, in my sort of schoolboy reading, there mm. was Philby, Burgess, McLean, um, later on George Blake. Um, and it always seemed to me that these were all sort of um, ex-public schoolboy or very well-educated, very well-up people. Am I right in my supposition? That's absolutely correct. Um, in the 20s, as I mentioned, the Soviet agents were working with existing communist groups. But by the 30s, they'd realised that the people they wanted to recruit were upper middle class, upper class people. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. 
But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. ...who would get access to important positions. So you mentioned Philby and Co. Um, you've got... Well, you've got a number of people in the 1930s recruited at Cambridge University, but... Uh, Kim Philby, Guy Burgess, Donald McLean, Anthony Blunt, they're the Cambridge spies, that spy with a capital S, um, which was a, a spy ring. And uh, it's often said that there was a fifth man, John Cairncross, although he never denied being a spy, but he denied being part of the ring. He said he didn't like the others, they didn't get on, there's no way he's going to work with them. Was their motivation um, financial? No, it wasn't. Um some of the early agents in the 20s were recruited because they were in financial need. But the thing about Philby, McLean and so on is that they worked voluntarily as spies. They so it's ideology in their case. Yep. They had joined uh, communist or socialist societies when they were at university. I mean, uh, you've got CUS, Cambridge University Socialist Society, which is particularly active and uh, the thing was, of course, after they graduated, they had to break all these ties. Otherwise, there would have been no use as spies. So Philby went to the other extreme. He started getting involved with Nazi groups, Nazi sympathising <laughs> groups. And he even cultivated a friendship with Joachim von Ribbentrop, who was the German ambassador to Britain between 36 and 38, and a hardline Nazi. So, you know, he really covered his tracks as well as he could. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And um, can we now have a sort of a London slant on it? Because being a Londoner and mm. obviously a London taxi driver, um, when I'm driving around, it, it's nice to sort of see things and, you know, associate them with the past, if you follow me. Yeah. So can you tell me sort of anything that happened in the London area that I can relate to? Oh, there's loads, there's loads. Go on in, start um, me off. Well, I mean... We were talking about the the interwar period and uh, and moving from the working class, as it were, to the middle class people. Well, in 1920, that's when you get the founding of the Communist Party of Great Britain, and they were at 
16 King Street in Covent Garden. Oh, right, yeah. So, which is now a bank on the corner of King Street and Bedford Street. Yeah, I know it well. Yeah. So they came into being as a merger of some existing communist groups. And one of the founder members was Percy Glading. And he worked at the Woolwich Arsenal. So he was born out east, sort of Leytonstone way. And, well, say out east, east London, yeah. just to clarify, not, not the far east. Um, but uh, he was working at the Woolwich Arsenal through the First World War. And uh, he got sacked in 1928 because of his connection with communist groups. But he knew other communist sympathisers within the Arsenal who um, they weren't connected overtly and they became his spy ring. So this is a working class spy ring. And so they were based at the Arsenal, though Woolwich Arsenal closed down in 1994. There's very little of that left. Yeah, it's all developed, their houses, That's et right, cetera. Yeah. Yeah. But what we've got is Charing Cross Station. And what used to happen would be that his ring, uh, individually, would get a false-bottom suitcase, put top-secret military blueprints in the false-bottom, and then bring it up by train to Charing Cross. And there they met Percy, and he would take the plans off of them uh, to go to a safe house in Battersea. So this is a flat in a house that had been hired for the purpose. And there would be Soviet agents waiting there to photograph the plans. Uh, Holland Road, it was. And, uh, and then the plans would go back to Woolwich so that they could be put back into the files. So it was at Charing Cross Station that Percy Glading and one of these ring, Albert Williams, were arrested. And uh, subsequently, two other members of the ring were arrested as well, George Womack and Charles Mundy. Oh, right. So there's a working class spiring for you. Okay. Um, now move me up. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, we mentioned uh, Philby, Kim Philby. I mean, he was the arch traitor. Uh, when he finally was, uh, well, the, 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 the evidence pointed unequivocally to him as a traitor. He was in the Lebanon by that time in Beirut. Um, but he'd done so much damage, it was incredible. And there are various places around London connected with him. For instance, he was recruited to MI6 in 1940 at St Ermin's Hotel in oh, Caxton Street. Oh, I know, yeah, Caxton mm. Street down near Victoria. That's right, yeah. Um, a hotel which had a lot of connections with intelligence because of the government department and intelligence departments around there. And he was a journalist, Philby, after graduating from Cambridge, and he'd been in France, in Paris, in 1940, when the Germans invaded. And he hung on as long as he could, and then eventually fled France so quickly, he left all his luggage behind. But uh, he, on the train coming up from Dover to London, he got talking with another war journalist, um, and she suggested to him that there might be a more useful way of serving his country than just being a journalist. And shortly afterwards, he got invited to tea at St Ermin's Hotel by Marjorie Maxey, who was MI6. And that's how he was recruited. And uh, so that's where he was recruited. So that's one Philby location. <clears throat> but then at, well, it was 54 Ryder Street. It's been renumbered now at number 14. So, Ryder with a Y. So, that's St. James's Ryder Street. 
That's right, yeah. yeah so just to the south of Piccadilly. Yeah. <clears throat> and um, on the corner there, you've got the building that used to host Section 5 of MI6. And that was the counterintelligence department. So whereas MI5 was about catching overseas agents active in Britain, counterintelligence was about looking at the intelligence systems in other countries and obviously guarding against what they might do to Britain. And so Philby had been moved from, he was with the SOE, the Special Operations Executive, the Espionage and Sabotage Group, but he was moved over to Section 5 of MI6, which was in St Albans, but in 1943 they moved to Ryder Street. And the thing is, that was where he was working alongside Nicholas Elliott. And Nick Elliott had become one of Philby's best friends. And Philby was given Spain and Portugal as his area because he'd been in Spain as a journalist covering the Spanish Civil War. Although, of course, MI6 didn't know that he was there being uh, supported by Soviet money. But um, Nick Elliott was given the Netherlands. And the thing about Nick Elliott, as I say, he became one of Philby's closest friends and felt the betrayal probably the keenest of anybody when it was shown that Philby was a double agent recruited uh, in the 1930s at Cambridge to spy for the Soviets. And Nick Elliott had to go out to Beirut to get the confession from Philby. And he did... Obviously, the room where they were talking was heavily bugged and everything was recorded. But uh, then Philby defected to the Soviet Union and afterwards he sent a letter to Nick Elliott saying, you know, we must meet somewhere neutral. He suggested Helsinki. And he put a postcard in for Elliott to send his response. It was a picture postcard of Tower Bridge. And Nick Elliott's response was just one sentence. He said, put some flowers for me on Volkov's grave. And Volkov was a Soviet agent who wanted to defect to Britain in Istanbul. And Philby was given the task of handling the defection. And obviously he was a Soviet agent, so he delayed long enough for the Soviets to pick Volkov up and take him back to the Soviet Union and execute him. So that was his way of saying, you know, get lost, I know yeah, what you've done. Absolutely, that's how okay. deeply he felt it. So the two of them were working side by side at 54 Ryder Street, but James Angleton worked there as well. Um, there was a contingent of officers of the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, which was an American organisation, wartime organisation, which became the CIA. And so they came over there on being instructed in counterintelligence. And Angleton was almost monomaniac about his job, you know, and Philby really respected that, and they became good friends. So when Philby was posted to Washington in 1949 as an MI6 agent, they used to have these boozy lunches together, the two of them. And when Philby was identified as a spy, Angleton, who was the head of counterintelligence of the CIA at that point, when it's a total denial. Yep, I never trusted him. I knew there was something wrong with him. You know, we never yeah. discussed anything sensitive, yes, except all that shop they talked of their boozy lunches at the seafood restaurant. So, yeah, so 54 Ryder Street is an important location. Okay. 
and moving around London. Mm. Um, can you tell me how there are groups that operated in London that were either caught? Well, they obviously had to be caught for you to know about them. Yeah, that's right. They would have done, yeah. <laughs> um, probably the most interesting one is the Portland spy ring. Uh, Portland on the south coast of England there used to be an experimental naval base so like a naval version of the Woolwich Arsenal and there were two people Harry Houghton and Ethel G and what they used to do on occasional Fridays on the way out from their work at the base they would smuggle out blueprints the following morning Saturday morning they'd bring them up to London and they would hand them over to Gordon Lonsdale, a Canadian businessman, who was actually Conan Molody, a Soviet agent. And oh, wow. he would photograph them because the plans, again, had to go back to the files. Right, yeah, before um, they were noticed they were missing. Absolutely. Yeah. But they were doing it for money. Uh, ah, I mentioned... Right. Um, so there was no ideology involved here. It was purely a pound note. Oh, absolutely, yeah, definitely. Mm. So they, were, they, they would meet at Waterloo. And they were caught, well, they were arrested by a special branch outside the Old Vic Theatre, well, round the corner on Waterloo Road. And the thing is that the story got out. Within 48 hours, it was all over the newspapers, and they made a film of it called Ring of Spies, with, uh, interestingly, Harry Houghton, the traitor, was played by Bernard Lee, who was the original M in the original Bond film. So you've got oh, right, James yeah. Bond's boss Connection. playing a yeah. traitor. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it became really famous, especially because apart from those three being arrested, the, the Krogers were arrested at Rislip in the West London suburbs. And they were Morris and Lona Cohen, who were US citizens, but they'd been active Soviet agents since the 40s. And in the 1980s, a play was written by Hugh Whitemore called Pack of Lies, which then became a film, which was about the impact on the neighbours finding out that they had Soviet spies living next door. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's a really big thing. Yeah. And, I mean, the police were happy about that because it gave them kudos, you know, that they arrested these major spies and it was splashed all over the papers. MI5 didn't like it, though, because they believed, and it still believed, that there were more than two agents at the base. Right, so that would have tipped them all off. That's right. They were hoping yeah. to keep it secret and in the hopes that the Soviets would try and contact the other agents. Yeah, so there, the rest, as I say, took place by the Old Vic Theatre. Right, and sort of bringing it up to date mm. now, um, what what's going on in London at the moment? I know you, you're not a first-hand <laughs> knowledge, but, I mean, is there any recent cases? One really interesting case was 2010, Katya Zatulaveta. She was a 25-year-old Russian woman. Uh, she'd come over to the UK in 2006 to study for a postgraduate degree, but she also got a position as an aide or assistant to the Liberal Democrat MP, Mike Hancock. And uh, one of his things was he was on an all-party committee looking into Russian affairs. And MI5 believed she was a Russian spy, and they believed that she was having the affair with him so that she could get access to sensitive information. And the fact that she, she wasn't just having an affair with him, she'd also had or was having affairs with other political uh, men, including a Dutch diplomat, an official of NATO, and an official of the United Nations. So one affair with a political man 
could be understandable. Yes. Four looked a bit deliberate. Modern-day so, Matahari. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. Well, that, that's what they believed she was. But the MI5 interrogated her uh, at hotels, incidentally. They didn't take her to the headquarters at Thames House. They interviewed her in a nice, civilised way in hotels, uh, including the Savoy and the Strand Palace. Mm-hmm. Um, but they couldn't get any information about her. You know, They couldn't get any evidence that she was a spy. So they eventually dropped the investigation, but they put her down to be deported. And that was 2010. But she appealed to SEAC, the Special Immigration Appeals Committee. And the deportation order was overturned in 2011. She was granted leave to stay. But one of the things about it is that she had to bring her diaries and to show that Okay, she'd had affairs with four political men, but that was a drop in the ocean. She was having affairs all over the place, you know, left, right and centre. Very busy lady. Absolutely. I wonder if she could get any studying in for a postgraduate degree. (laughs) And so so just to sort of round this off for me, Mm -hmm. um, the the MI5, MI6, they're obviously still very much in operation today. Yes. Has their roles changed? MI6 hasn't. Think about MI6, um, they are the secret intelligence service with a big underline on secret. We don't know what they're doing. I mean, they know they're spying on people, obviously, but um, we don't know literally what they're doing, which is, of course, what you'd want. You yes, wouldn't want yeah. espionage to be undermined in that way. So, I mean, even their official history um, only goes up from 1909 to 1949. Don't go any further. Um, because they're quite happy to tell you on their website that anything since then is a bit too sensitive. But MI5 has changed. Um, the, the, the major espionage threat was the Soviet Union. So when you get to the 1980s, you get the thawing of the Cold War. 1989, you get the Berlin Wall coming down, and then the Soviet Union breaks up in 1991. Uh, but by that time, MI5 had been getting more into counterterrorism. So now they are mainly a counter-terrorist organisation, although they do undertake counter-espionage things, like, for instance, investigating Katja Sotulaveta. But most espionage that's carried out over here now is industrial, industrial and commercial. Okay, so it wouldn't be military or leading to wars. And who would be the chief culprits for that? Well, I'm not sure I could really say um, (laughs) without uh, committing myself, but the word is that espionage is coming over from China. Right. Okay. Because China, as you know, is becoming increasingly a manufacturer. So, Mm. David, once again, very enlightening. Thank you very much indeed. And as I say, when I'm driving around London in my taxi, it gives me something else to think about. Thank you. Yeah, look for those suspicious people with the holes in their newspapers. <laughs> Absolutely. The Thank you. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.